This is the Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with Jethro Jones, a nationally recognized principal and host of several education-focused podcasts. Today, Jethro will share practical advice to improve the employee experience in education, including suggestions to improve your onboarding processes and how to make teacher evaluations more than just a hoop you have to jump through. You don't want to miss this episode. All right, Jethro, thanks so much for joining me today. I can't wait to hear about you and the work you're doing for schools and school leaders. But before we get to that, can you talk about your journey to become an educator first? Yeah, you know, it's something that I uh, uh, avoided for a long time and actually graduated from high school or from college with a degree in English, thinking that I would be a technical writer. And uh, at the last minute, my wife said, I know you want to be a teacher. Why don't you just go do that? And I said, because I'll never make enough money. And she said, well, we'll make it, we'll make it work. Just you need to do what you, what you would love doing. So I did that. And that was before I realized that you could, um, you, there are many jobs include teaching other people how to do things. (laughs) And so I, I learned that and was very grateful later on in life when I figured out that teaching does not mean being in a K-12 classroom, but there are many different things that you can do. And I know you've been working on the Transformative Principle podcast for about nine years now. So congratulations on that. 500 some episodes. That's it's quite the network that you've built out there. A lot of over a million total listens. Is that right? Yeah. And it's crazy how it just keeps on going up. But, you know, that's what happens when you have a deep catalog that people go in and listen to it and uh, go find stuff from years ago. In fact, I just met with somebody who uh, said that he was at a, a presentation of some sort. And somebody used a clip from my podcast to share something. And then he said, huh, that looks like an interesting podcast. And then he went and found it. And it's uh, it's pretty cool how that works over time. Yeah, that's great. And you were an administrator for a few years before starting the podcast. So I'm curious, what, what was your goal with the podcast? And then how has that shaped who you are as an educational leader? Yeah, I think this is really key to your podcast here, the uh, employee experience in education, because as an assistant principal for about a year and a half, I was not feeling good about the professional development that I was getting. And I didn't feel like I was getting the support that I needed to really become a transformative principal. And so I started the podcast because I knew that there were transformative principles out there and I wanted to be able to have that for myself as well. And so it was basically just a cheat code for me that uh, if, if you go listen to all the podcasts, you can hear my whole educational journey. Every question that I asked was something that I was struggling with in the moment. And that's why I invited people onto the podcast to learn how to deal with the problems that I was facing. And I built up my own little private network of mentors, and then I just shared it out with other people. And so, you know, you can hear how I believe one thing in episode 20 And I totally contradict that in episode 80 because I've learned and grown and developed. And really, it was because I didn't feel like I was getting what I personally needed and I wanted to do better and be better and thought that was a good way to do it. Yeah. And I I talk with a lot of superintendents, HR leaders, principal about this idea of the employee experience, right? A A lot of teacher retention conversations. And the questions that I ask are very similar to you. 
people ask me these questions and I, I don't always have all the answers, but I feel like I can ask a pretty good question. So the questions that I ask are similar to you in that things that I'm genuinely curious about or questions that I wished I had asked when I was an administrator. I was in the, the administrator role for about four years. So not a long time by any stretch of the imagination, but I was very inquisitive and I was trying to figure out, you know, especially from a process perspective, how do we set up processes that allow our teachers to flourish? Because if our teachers flourish, our students end up flourishing as well. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's so important to recognize that, that, so there, there are different types of principals, right? Who are all about the, the students and there's some that are all about the teachers and there's some that are all about the community. And the reality is, is that all of those things connect to each other. And so if you are heavy in one area, that means that you're probably leaving another area behind. And so if you are a 100% teacher focused principal, and that's what all your stuff is about, and those people are out there and they exist and, you know, whatever. But if that's the case, then you're leaving something behind for students. And if you're totally focused on the students, then you're leaving something behind for the teachers. And this was brought to me um, very clearly one time by one of my teachers, which if this doesn't, if this story doesn't illustrate how meaningful and powerful it is for teachers to feel comfortable saying things to you as the principal, uh, I don't know what will. So uh, I was, I was talking to her about something and she said, do you know why the teachers are afraid of you, Jethro? And I said, what? Teachers are afraid of me? That's crazy. They shouldn't be. And she said, well, they are. And here's why. They know that you are so into supporting students that you will side with students if anything comes up. And if the teacher is not 100% confident that she's in the right, then she's afraid to bring it to you for fear that you're going to side with a student. And I said, you know what? That's the truth. I I am going to side with the student because that's what we're all here for. And she said, well, I don't expect you to change, but I want you to know that that's what people perceive. And once she said that to me, I was like, oh, that makes total sense why people don't want to bring things to me because they know that if 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 they're not 100% in the right, I'm going to side with the student. And so I started just telling people that and saying, look, I am here for the betterment of our students and you can do a lot of things, but if you're doing something that harms students or or does or you're doing something that is unfair to students, I'm going to side with the students. And it's important for you to understand that. And once I was able to admit that, then I was able to start showing how people could get around that and do things that were risky or scary or whatever, because if they started with the intention of I'm doing this for the benefit of kids, then it made it a lot easier to justify that they were trying it. And if they failed, it was a lot easier. Relationships instantly improved once I was able to say what I was feeling without being able to articulate it before that. Yeah, the whole idea of communication there is critical. So we do employee experience surveys with some of the schools that we work with. The lowest question on average is, my organization effectively communicates with me. And I, even as a leader, so many times, because you know the context, you know the background, you know your thought processes, so you don't feel like at times you need to say something. But when you put on that empathy hat and say, if I'm a teacher, so the whole idea of employee experience, what is it like to work at this school and this organization? If you think like a teacher for a little bit, start to question, what are some of the strengths that I have? What are some of the strengths that we have as a building? Why maybe am I notice teachers aren't coming up to me? Is there a reason for that? And oftentimes communication is that key. 
Yeah, almost always. And that's something that I found, <clears throat> for example, uh, I use these things called communication cards where they have sentence starters that I put on the wall that are difficult conversations for people to have, whether it's about money or about crises in your personal life, or um, you think that I believe something about you and you think that I'm mad at you about something. Those are all things that are difficult for teachers, especially to start the conversation about. And so I use those communication cards to help teachers start that conversation. And the most important thing there is not that they have this little card that helps them start a conversation. It's that they know exactly how I'm going to act when they show me the card. So if they say I have a crisis in my personal life, I go into empathy mode and I start being understanding. I don't try to solve it because I know I can't. And I help them see that I care about their personal life. That's not easy for every leader to do. Some people are very good at that. Others are not. And while I think that I'm good at that, I don't always come across that way. And so I use these to say to my staff, here's here's how I will react when you show me this card. And then I react like that, even if I totally don't want to. But I know this is so important for me to show you how I'm going to act so that it's not a surprise. And then we can move from there and go into different ways of supporting them, solving the problem, whatever it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what what you're doing is you're creating an environment where teachers feel heard. And I talk all the time on this podcast that teachers want to feel heard, supported, and valued. And something simple, like that seems like a simple concept. The alternative is you're expecting teachers to know what to say, how to say it, and then be unsure as to how what the response is going to be. So just like before, setting expectations, my expectation is that we have this card. It's a conversation starter. I know how I'm going to react and I'm communicating to you how I'm going to react, which then creates this environment. You talk a lot about, you know, school culture, how important school culture is. It's that communication is the relationships. It's the feeling heard, supported and valued that sets up that culture for success. Yeah. Well, and if I if I can just call out something that you said in uh, in the podcast in Transformative Principle that you were on with uh, my host, who's hosting that this year, Eric McKelkey, um, you had talked about things being on on teachers plates and how everybody has a lot on their plate and we have this hero paradox in education and that teachers and principals feel like they need to have all the answers and that's not the case at all um we can ask questions we cannot be sure about something but when we feel like we have to have the answers that makes it so that we aren't our best selves and we aren't asking other people what their opinions are and how they think we can do things better because even if they're wrong, Eric, just asking them makes them feel like they have a stake in the game, makes them feel like they that their opinion matters. And that is a huge impact on their day-to-day work because they have more confidence. They feel like they're a trusted advisor to the principal and to other teachers in the building. And those are just, that's a very little thing, but it means so much to each individual to feel like they really do matter in the organization. And to that extent, one of the things that I say all the time to teachers and to principals is that we are cogs in a machine. And if we if we were to die, they would have the job posted on Monday. Like there's there's not going to be any delay. They're going to put this thing out there and know they're going to have somebody else in our spot right away. And and so we have to find that balance of recognizing that we really matter a lot and we're irreplaceable. But at the same time, we are totally replaceable in this education system that we're in because it is a machine and 
we're just a cog. And as soon as we break, they're going to pull us out and put someone else in. And we have to recognize that that is a reality, but we can still provide value and have good experiences while we're there. For sure. So I know, Jeff, though, you consult with schools and districts about a wide variety of topics. I'd love to start kind of big picture first. What what are you seeing at a macro level as far as the biggest needs of school right now? A lot of headlines about the teacher shortage. Is that it? Is there something even bigger in education right now? Yeah, I think that the teacher shortage is a symptom of a bigger issue. And the bigger issue is that uh, the thing that I was just talking about, that we're just cogs in a machine and this education system is just a machine and it's going to chew people up and spit them out and it's just going to keep on going. And the biggest thing that we've experienced, all of us, is this pandemic that recently happened. And when we shut down all the schools, we told kids that everything that we had been doing was all made up. All the tests, all the grades, they were canceled and frozen. And we said, you know what? None of this stuff matters because this scary thing is happening. And that's that's just the reality. Now, what is what is even more true than that is that no matter what is going on in the world, every single person is really in charge of their own learning. Nobody else can take that away from us. Nobody else can have um, any more influence than we give them over our own personal learning. And so as adults in the system, we have to continually be getting better. As students in the system, students have to recognize that doesn't matter who your teacher is or what's going on, your learning is your responsibility. And this is something that I don't think a lot of people still understand. People talk about getting back to normal and things the way they were. And I'm here to tell you, they're never going to go back to the way that they were. And any attempt to do that is going to be met with eventual frustration. So what we have to understand is that every person owns their own learning and we need to focus on that more because that will actually take care of the teacher shortage. That will actually take care of people feeling like they're being used and abused in the system and it will make people enjoy what they're doing more. In the old system before COVID-19, teachers were pressuring and fighting with kids to get their homework done get their grades done and all that kind of stuff. And that, in my opinion, <clears throat> does not need to happen anymore. The conversation should be about this is your education, you're in charge of it. It doesn't matter to us whether or not kids do their homework or their schoolwork or do well on tests, because once they're out of our class, we don't care about them anymore. Now, before I, I get hate mail, we do care about kids and we do care about their success. But the reality is the day to day, we're focused on the kids that are right in front of us. And so once people understand that their lives are are in control by them, then I think a lot of things are going to solve themselves. And if teachers understand that, that they're in charge of their own life and their own professional growth, I think that'll change a lot of things as well. So can you can you expand on that? So if teachers are in charge of their own learning and growth, how will that create this environment where they choose to stay teachers? And maybe your definition of what school is, I don't know if that changes because we have a brick and mortar society for the most part, if you will, for school. Does, do you envision that changing or how, how does this impact the teacher on a kind of day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. A lot of the reason why people are leaving the profession is because they're getting burned out and they're getting burned out because they're working and doing so much and trying to control so much that is totally out of their control. So if teachers understood that my job is really to connect with kids 
and help them have those light bulb moments that every new teacher in their first interview for a job talks about. If that's what they spend all their time doing and those are their two things they focus on, the assignments don't matter, the tests don't matter because you see kids learning every single day. Now, the assignments and the learning will come naturally as a result of you having good relationships and caring about kids. But the reality is, is that until you have that relationship, none of that stuff matters anyway. And so if a kid is just doing the assignments because you told them to, and they're not learning anything from them, what's the point of them even doing them to begin with? It doesn't make any sense. So if you spend your whole entire day connecting with kids, talking about things that they love, and you see those light bulb moments all day, wouldn't you want to stay in education? Of course you would. There's no reason why you'd want to leave because that is so fulfilling for anybody who went into education for those reasons. Now, if you went into education for other reasons, then that's not going to be the same thing. But if that's really what you're there for, then it's going to happen. And you're going to feel great about it. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know there, there are two kind of components of the employee experience you talk about a lot. One being onboarding, the other being school culture. We talked culture a little bit. I'll come back to that in just a second. I'd love to hear your perspective on onboarding. How So 25% of new teachers leave. It's about 25% in their first year, 44% in their first five years. Now, that's what research shows. What are you seeing in the real world? Is that Do those numbers accurately reflect what's happening? Yeah, they definitely do. And so I was a principal in Kodiak and Fairbanks, Alaska, and in a Title I school in uh, Utah. And so those were all difficult places. And we saw, especially in Alaska, that if we did not prepare people for what it was like to be in Alaska, then it was really difficult for them to stay there. So I got a good lesson on why onboarding is so important, and you have to onboard people to your culture as well. And so you don't have to say everything's perfect and the school is amazing and here's everything that's great. You can actually say, here are some of the things that are aspirational, that we aren't quite there yet, but we hired you because we want more of this. And that's a perfectly acceptable thing to say. So to take my last example to keep to keep us focused here, if we say... We're looking for people who want to see kids' light bulb moments and be mentors to them instead of lecturers to them. We're going to attract a certain kind of person. Then in the onboarding process, we talk to them about how to make that happen and how to make sure that they are doing the things that enable them to see those light bulb moments with students. Now, specifically in Kodiak, it was typically a two and a half month period from the time we offered a job to somebody to the time they arrived on the island. And so we had about uh, 10 weeks where we could send them emails on a weekly basis and describe what we were trying to get at and what we were trying to build and create as part of part of our system at that school. And I think that recognizing that we had that time enabled us to put systems and processes in place so that people knew what they were getting into. So each week we'd send out an email with, stuff about the school and what we believed and how we worked and something about living in Kodiak. And I think that any school can do this. And you put in some work up front creating these emails and you do it in real life with a new hire that you're bringing on and you use them to help tell the story of your school and why what you're doing matters and how they can fit into that. And then you make sure that they know what to expect as they come there. Working in a Title I school, Uh, We knew that everybody was not cut out for that work. And so we would tell people early on, 
this is what it looks like. This is what the day-to-day is. We have an after-school program and we want people to be working in that. We have a lot of kids who are low in their academic skills and we need extra work. We need time with them to make it work. So these are the things that we're going to expect of you. And being clear and upfront about that actually made some people more excited and made some people less excited. So the onboarding process then becomes this way of helping them understand what the culture is, how we work together and how we can be successful. And there are a few things that I think are completely essential once somebody is actually hired. You need a cultural mentor for the new teacher. If they've already been a teacher and they know how to do the teaching part, you still need someone to say, this is how we do things at our school. And if your school is not unique enough that you can say, this is how we do things, then you need to work on making your school unique enough so that you can say, this is how we do things. Um, So you need a a cultural mentor. You also need a pedagogical mentor, someone who says, this is how you, how you teach in our school. And again, if, if your way that you teach is not unique enough that somebody needs that, then you probably need to do some work to make it so that you're actually serving the people that are right there in front of you. Um, And then the third thing that you need is time. (laughs) Like you just need time with those new people. They don't know you. You don't know them. You probably only hired them after one interview. And that was probably it because that's typically how things go. And so you need time to get to know them, understand who they are. So a pedagogical mentor, a cultural mentor, and time. Those three things, if you have those in place in your onboarding process, then you're going to be good. Now, how much time is enough time? It's hard to say. But if you're not meeting with those new teachers to your school every single week in some way, shape, or form, then you're definitely not doing enough. I would say there should be daily check-ins for the first two months of school, and then you can move to... Uh, a couple check-ins a week and then a couple um, check-ins a month after that. But you really should be around them a lot, way more than you think you should, way more than than what uh, most uh, principal preparation programs suggest. So what's fascinating about that to me is if I'm a busy principal and Jeff, though, you're telling me I need to meet with my new people every day for two months. My first thought is I don't have time for that. I'm putting out putting out too many fires too many people need me, which then forces me to say, okay, what, what are my priorities here? Because especially now with the teacher shortage, you can hire people. If you can find somebody, if you can, if there's somebody in your pool, you can try to hire them, cross your fingers and hope they stay, which means you're probably just looking for somebody new next year, or you can invest in these people, build those relationships, make sure they understand the the building, the culture, the needs of our students, where their particular fit is within the overall culture. So I, my, my first thought is if I was a principal, I would think you're crazy, but I think that's the most important thing we can do is to pour into our people, especially those beginning teachers. Again, 25% of them leave on average across the U S I don't know what's more important than keeping the people that are there that then take care of your students. Yeah. So there's two aspects to this. Number one, if the person's really not good, you want to know in the first two months that they're not good so that you can say this isn't working out and, you know, we need to actually let you go. Uh, ideally, you know, they're great and everybody's awesome and, and that's wonderful. Um, so one, you want to know right away if they're not a good fit culturally or pedagogically. And then the second aspect of this is that it is we don't think about this in education, 
but it is way more expensive to hire someone new than it is to train and keep the person that you've got. We don't care about money in education, unfortunately. And so there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of, you know, we'll just hire someone new. And, and the problem is, is that when you hire someone new, you have to go through this whole entire process again and get them enculturated into your building and help them understand what you're really all about. Now, if somebody's really not a good fit, you should be able to know right away and help them find a different placement. And that doesn't mean that like you have to hate them. I have one teacher that I can think of that I think of often who was not a good fit for our school, but she was a great teacher and she just couldn't do what we needed her to do at our school. But many other schools, she could find success. And sure enough, that's what she did. And it was a difficult conversation to say this isn't going to work out, but it was worth it so that she could move on and find something better. And the reality was she was not happy coming to work every day and it was a chore and she would have resigned if I didn't say, uh, and she would have left the profession, I think, if I didn't say, you have potential to be a great teacher and I think you're well on your way, but not here. And that's not a knock against you. That's just you not fitting into what we're trying to do here. Doesn't mean that you're a bad teacher. Doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means this isn't the right place. Go find a place where you can really be happy and really do great things and you will flourish and excel. And I can't think of anything that would be better for you than doing that. Sure enough, she went to a different school. The very next year, she was on fire. Her her principal <laughs> reached out to me and said, why did you ever let her go? And I said, she just wasn't fitting. And at your school, she fits wonderfully. And I'm so glad that she found a place. It was really difficult, but it was so worth it. For her to get to a better place. So let's talk pragmatically for a second, especially with those check-ins. What I've noticed is a lot of principal school leaders don't know what questions to ask. If They don't do one-on-ones. There are very few one-on-ones in education in general. If I do have a one-on-one, it's oftentimes a post-observation conference or pre-observation. There's an agenda. There's a reason for meeting. What, what can a principal do in a short check-in? doesn't have to be this long 15-minute thing, but what are some questions how would you guide principals in having those conversations daily with their new teachers? What's that conversation sound like? Yeah. So first of all, there are two really bad questions to ask. Uh, one of them is, how's everything going? That is a horrible question to ask because everybody's going to say it's fine. And the second question that's horrible to ask is, what can I do to help? Or is there anything I can help you with? Those two questions are too open-ended for people to have success. Now, the reason why those are bad questions is because everybody always asks those kinds of questions. And so the default answer is, I'm fine, and no, I don't need any help. There are different ways to ask those questions that are really going to be fantastic. Um, To save everybody a lot of time, I would suggest getting the book, The Coaching Habit. I think it's by Michael Bungay something. I don't remember, but it's called The Coaching Habit, and it's fantastic. There are seven questions in there. The first one is, what's on your mind and what else? And if you ask that question, what's on your mind, you are inviting them to say, this is what is keeping me up at night. That's what you want to go for. So that when they say, I don't have enough paper and I just need more paper, it's like, shoot, I can buy you 12 reams of paper today. Not a problem at all. Um, The other one, uh, what else, is allows you to go down a deeper layer so that when they say, well, this and this and this is happening, what else is on your mind? And you can ask that five or six times. 
until they get to the thing that is actually causing them some challenge or some grief. And I promise you, if you ask those two questions, they're going to they're going to open up and share with you what is really going on. Now, that doesn't have to take more than 30 seconds, to be honest. If you say, what's on your mind? And they say, well, I just need these copies made. Great. I can go make copies for you. We have other people who can make copies like that is an easy solution. As you do that and you start helping them with the challenges they're facing, they will start opening up to you more about the things that they're really struggling with, that they were too afraid to tell you the first time. That's what we don't want. We don't want teachers shutting down and saying everything's fine when they're not. And we know early teachers aren't doing well anyway. There's so much being asked of them, especially if I'm new out of college, I have to maintain somewhat, you know, some semblance of order with these 25 to 30 kids. I have triggered, all of these things are going on. So just these simple open-ended questions that are not, Hey, how are you doing? Like, I'm great. Thanks. Fine. Okay. See ya. I did my check-in. It's that, it's that communication again, comes back to that. Let's talk about culture a little bit because culture building to me, it seems like trying to move a massive mountain. It's really hard to do because culture is this intangible thing sometimes how, how do you define culture and what do you do to begin working on improving the culture of a, either a building or a district? Yeah. So in my, in my work now, the thing that I get most often is I need to improve my culture. And my question is always, what are you doing to take care of yourself? And people always say, I, I don't need help with self-care. I need help with taking care, like improving the culture in my school. And the reality is, after 500 plus interviews on transformative principle, asking so many principals this same question, how do you improve the culture? It all starts with you as the leader. When people see that you are taking care of yourself and you are healthy in your relationships and the things you're doing, that lays the groundwork for them to start making changes themselves. Now, the analogy that I like best is that culture is like the fruit that you pick off of a tree. If you go to an apple tree and you pick off the fruit and you say, I don't like this apple. I wish it were a pear. You don't get to change it. You have to go back and do the groundwork that made that apple an apple and, and do the groundwork that would make it a pear, which means planting a different tree and doing all the groundwork that leads up to that. And that seems like it will take forever. But the beauty of humans is that we can change our culture very quickly. It doesn't take forever but you still have to go through the same process. So in, in how to be a transformative principal, that is the whole point of the book is to talk about how to change that apple into a pear, because that's the kind of culture that you want. And if we can do that with these, these little steps that really are not that big, uh, we can actually make it happen. So in that book, I go through uh, the, the eight things that lead up to changing the culture. And it starts with self-care and it includes relationships and having a vision and how you do observations and how you hire people and how you reprimand people and all that kind of stuff that all goes into it, goes into communication as well. All those things matter because they are part of this bigger thing that is culture. And culture is something that you can feel and taste. And I think that's why the fruit analogy is so good, is that when you go into a building and and you're there for any amount of time, you can feel what the culture is like in that building. And you're not going to be able to change it by saying, I want it to be this way. You have to actually do the groundwork to get there. Is, is culture measurable or is culture kind of a lagging indicator? So there's lead indicators and lag indicators, right? Lead indicators are the levers, lag indicators 
what happens as a result. How, how do you define culture that way? Is it a lagging indicator? I, I say that culture definitely is a lagging indicator because you can't, you can't measure it every day and say, this is, this is what the culture is. What you can do is measure those leading indicators, like whether or not you're taking care of yourself, like whether or not communication is open and transparent and people feel like they can say what they need to say, whether or not you have a vision, you can measure those things and then see what their effect is on the culture. And so just like with a with a fruit tree, you can see how it's growing, whether or not it's straight, whether or not it's what you want it to be. But until the fruit comes out, you can't really taste it. The good thing is, is that you can taste the fruit much sooner and you can see the changes much sooner because you're laying those those groundwork pieces. And and so, as I mentioned, it's a feeling and something that you can experience, but it's much more difficult to say our culture is good because of X, Y and Z and not have those things be the other things that build up culture. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's really breaking it down into kind of those sub components, like what, what makes a culture. And then when you look at it that way, you're not trying to measure the elephant. You're trying to measure the size of the legs, trying to measure, okay, our, our trunk is, is getting wider in diameter. I can tell that our tree is getting taller. I can see we have some leaves that are growing now before the fruit actually gets born there. So, yeah. And so if I can just add to that, something that's really important. So I had a, a principal say, I need to improve my culture. I said, what do you do to take care of yourself? She said, well, I'm not. I'm working 14 hour days. I get home, I put my kids in bed, and then I get on my computer until 11 o'clock at night and I'm sending emails and all this. And I said, well, that's where you need to start changing. So no more being on your computer at night. Just leave your computer at work. She's like, well, I can't do that because there are all these things that I have to take care of and I'll never have time. And I said, well, you can extend the time you're at work. And she said, well, I can't do that because I have to pick my kids up from school and daycare and stuff. And I said, well, you have to make a choice. It's not fair to your family that you're not a present parent. It's not fair to your school that you're sending them emails at 10 o'clock at night. So you have to decide what is actually going to be most beneficial to you, but you have to change how you're taking care of yourself. And it was really hard for her. However, by that was in January, by August, she could definitively say our culture is so much better now than it was in January because I've been doing these things. And so it can change very quickly, but you have to make some sacrifices and you have to do the hard work that you're avoiding doing because you think that this is what it looks like to be a principal. And the reality is, is that it looks like whatever you make it look like. And so you can choose today to make it look like something else, regardless of what the culture in your district is, regardless of what the superintendent or assistant superintendent's doing, you can decide what your school culture looks like, and you can start working to improve that starting today. You don't have to wait for permission. You have permission because you are a human being and you deserve that. Yeah, that that autonomy to be able to say, this is my building. Here's what I'm going to do about it. Just like we talk about autonomy with teachers all the time. So many teachers are burned out because, again, the idea of too much on their plates. I have no autonomy. School leaders have some amount of autonomy as well. It's being able to define what are the choices that I can make and then doing what's best for yourself and then what's best for the building, teachers, for the students, everybody within so let's talk about observations for a little bit. I know that's something you talk about, combining observations and vision. That's that's the world that I grew up in. I started a software company 10 years ago doing teacher evaluation. So it's something near and dear to my heart. Now, what I've noticed is most school leaders have gone through some type of training or a workshop or their principal preparation program had some amount of observation training in it. 
in many districts have requirements for what the evaluation process is. Sometimes 100 plus pages on here's everything you need to do. Yet teachers are saying consistently, I don't receive actionable feedback, helps me consistently improve my performance. Why is there such a gap when so many leaders are quote unquote taught what to do? They have processes, they have systems, yet teachers are saying it's not, it's not helpful to me. Well, first of all, um, we're, we're teaching them the wrong stuff. So my first district where I was a principal, we had 54 indicators that we needed to mark each time we did an observation. And those 54 indicators had some were tallies, some were yes or no, some were how many times or how, how many ways did they do this? All these different things. And the reality was all of that was completely pointless. And almost every observation system is completely pointless. An observation should really tell you if your teachers are implementing the vision that you have for your school. And if they're not, then that's what you should be focusing on. The evaluation system is a hoop to jump through. And Eric, I'm sure you have the exact number on this, but isn't it something like 97% of all teachers are rated as effective or highly effective? So we have this system in place that is completely pointless and ridiculous. And we're wasting an inordinate amount of time on doing something that nobody cares about and nobody pays any attention to because everybody is proficient at it. It is so difficult to uh, to evaluate someone out of the profession. It's easier to just find the thing they're doing wrong and fire them for cause. I mean, that is really the case. And so we might as well just do that. So when you're doing observations, your observations, the whole point is, is my vision for the school being fulfilled in this classroom? And if it's not, let's talk about how to fulfill the vision. Now, if you are a crazy all the way out there principal who has this super bizarre idea of what education should be, then that's not a good idea. But there's very few principals who are actually like that. So if you don't have a vision for your school, then you're on the other end of the spectrum. And that's a problem too. You need to have a vision for your school. That's what builds up the culture and says, this is why we exist. This is what we do. This is where we're trying to go and how we get there. And so if your observations are focused on on teachers aligning to the school's vision, then you have all the feedback that you need there. And you'll be able to tell if it's working or not the very next time that you go in. And that is actually actionable feedback. Now, what we typically do with Marzano and Danielson and any other observation system out there is we go in and see if they're doing the indicators that we think are important. And we waste time going over it when all they want at the end is the score that says they're proficient or not. Just like kids never read all the notes I put on their essays, they only looked at the grade and then didn't care about the rest. We're we're focusing on the wrong things. If we instead focused on our vision and whether or not teachers were implementing it, we would enjoy work better. We'd enjoy those observations better. They'd be less scary for the teachers. And we would also be able to accomplish whatever we needed to for our formal evaluation process and jump through that hoop because that's all it is. And as soon as we recognize that's really what it is, then we can give it the time that it deserves, which is the bare minimum to get it done, and then go back to helping our teachers be the best that they personally can be in our current context. And again, 97% of them will still pass the evaluation and be proficient or very proficient. Yeah. What I've noticed is when, when principals come in, especially newer principals, 
if they don't know what their evaluation framework is, there's a lot of questions like, well, what's the expectation here? What, what should I be looking for? When you sit down and say, here's the vision of the school, that provides so much clarity to teachers in terms of here's the direction that we're going. Here's what success looks like for our specific use case of the framework of the evaluation, whatever that is you're, you're looking at. Even if it's, a, if it's a framework that you create on your own, it's here are the expectations and then you can measure against the expectations as opposed to some arbitrary 54 elements, 95 elements, 115 pages of an evaluation framework. I mean, I, I sat in a teacher evaluation committee. I think it lasted four years. We were just constantly changing the rubric because the state of Indiana, where I'm from, they changed requirements. Here's day one, and then they relaxed a little bit. So we get back together and we would talk about all this pedagogical stuff. But like, what do we need? What do our kids need? How are we going to move everybody forward in the common direction? That was the important conversation, not let's wordsmith this one individual indicator for weeks at a time. Yeah, absolutely. And you you would feel so much better if you were actually doing the observations uh, aligned to your vision or not. You would enjoy the process. Your teachers would enjoy it more. They would know exactly what they need to do to be successful because you'd be telling them and you'd want to be in the classrooms sitting in an observation and marking down everything that the teacher is doing and scripting. Like, what is the point? Like, there is no point at all. And yet somehow that's what we've been doing for all these years. And so many principals are still making that their primary thing that they do. I I coached a principal who um, would spend an hour finishing her scripting and taking all the notes and doing everything for every single observation that she did. And I, I, I asked her, who is going to look at this? And she said, well, if I don't do it right, I'm going to get in trouble. And I said, what does that actually look like? What does it mean to get in trouble about this? And she said, well, they're going to say that I didn't do it right. And I said, do you think every single other principal is spending an hour extra on this at home after work every, every time they do an observation? She said, I'm sure they're not, but I'm a perfectionist and I need to get this done. And she cared more about following the rules of that than she cared about helping her teachers improve. And she was not doing anything to help them improve because not a single one of them was looking at anything that she wrote. And to script everything that they did and write it all down made no sense at all because you can just take a video if you need to reference something. And uh, you know, people were already doing that um, in her district. And so there was, there was just no point to it. And it was so sad to see her put all this time and energy into something that was completely meaningless, that her teachers never appreciated, her district never paid attention to either. They certainly don't have time to go through every one of these evaluations and make sure that, you know, all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. It's just a complete waste of time. And my what I ended up doing by the time I was done being a principal was I would do the evaluation process. And if a teacher had any surprises at the time of the evaluation, that was on me for being a bad principal <laughs> because they knew within the first two weeks of school, whether or not they were fitting my vision and they knew where they were. And so more teachers were surprised that their evaluation came out well, because I was so focused on the vision earlier in the year that they were like, I was sure my evaluation was going to be like a not effective because you've been so critical of everything that I've done this year. I said, well, I'm trying to help you meet my vision. 
and haven't you appreciated the feedback that you've gotten? And hasn't it made you a better teacher? And they're like, yeah, but I just thought my evaluation was going to be horrible. I was like, no, you're doing all the right things. That's, that's the bare minimum. That's the easy thing to get. What I want you to do is be even better and really reach our kids and really make an impact in their lives. And those are the things that I'm coaching you on week in and week out. This uh, first week of school, you were already a proficient teacher. I could tell there are very few that aren't. And so it's a very easy thing to put that in place and get that evaluation done, jump through the hoops and move on. Ideally, you wouldn't have to jump through those hoops and we could have a better system, but we don't. So you got to work within the system you have and and spend as little time as possible on the things that don't actually make an impact. Yeah. Yeah. One of my aha moments with teacher evaluations, we had a, a veteran teacher who was, she was an amazing teacher, sunshine. I mean, just positive all the time, wonderful teacher. We sat down with a post-observation conference and she said, Eric, I don't remember anything I taught. It's 45 minutes left. And I was in there 45 minutes scripting. She literally could not tell me because she got so nervous and she, everything just kind of happened automatically. And she goes, Eric, I don't remember anything that happened. And I thought, just like your story, spend 45 minutes in the classroom, 45 minutes at home after I put the kids to bed, whatever, fixing grammatical mistakes in my scripting, just for a conversation where she says, like, I don't do it on purpose, but I don't remember. Like, there's there's a lot of time being spent on activities that don't lead to, and our teachers are saying it. They're saying, I'm not receiving actionable feedback. It helps me consistently improve my performance. But your methodology, which is I'm going to go in often and tell you at the very beginning, hey, here are some things we could do to reach the vision. I have an observation evaluation system tied to the vision that brings everybody together. And it's not this punitive, you know, I'm a whatever rating. It's like you have to do that. That's not the purpose. The purpose is the feedback that you get, the the conversations that I have with kids. I like sitting in and saying to kids, what are you doing today and why is it important? Because oftentimes, you know, that's that's what it's all about is are the kids understanding. Yeah, totally. And so here's the other beautiful thing with that, Eric, is that when you when you're giving feedback on whether or not they're meeting the vision, they know whether or not they should be in your school. So they can start self-selecting and saying, man, I don't want to be doing this work like this. I want to do it this way. And so then they can go find a school where they can do that. What a gift that is to them to help them see what they're great at and what they should be focusing their time and energy on. And so they can go to um, to another school. Uh, so I, I work with a, a principal of a private school and she's the head of school for the school. And she said, "I this, this did not work out well. I'm gonna leave this school. And when I go to the next school, I'm gonna ask these specific questions because I saw how poorly they were implemented here. That is a great example of somebody learning what's going to work for them and where they need to be, where they can be successful. If she said, if these three things are not in place at the next school I'm applying to, I'm not going to take the job because I have to have those things in place or else I know I'm not going to be successful because I was not as successful as I could be here. So that is a great gift to give teachers as well, that they can see what it is that makes them a great teacher and where they can flourish with that. And they can ask pointed questions in an interview uh, where, you know, how at the end of the interview, they say, do you have any questions for us? Uh, I one time started asking questions like this and they're like, that's not really the point here. It's more like, when are we going to make a decision and stuff like that? And I, that was a great insight to me because I said, ah, I see that you don't care about these things. I'm not going to work here. If you offer me the job, I'm not going to accept it because you're getting at me about asking these questions that I think are really important for me to ask to determine if I want to work here. 
I'm not going to work here. There's no way I'm going to come to this district when that is the setup from the beginning. So giving teachers that gift of knowing where they excel, where they struggle, and helping them get better, I think is truly a remarkable thing that principals can do. And again, you can start doing that today. You don't have to wait. You can do it today and you can make a difference in those teachers' lives right away. Love it. Love it. So Jethro, what's one action or strategy that you hope each school leader listening today takes away from our conversation is able to put into practice? So I would say if, if you do just one thing, this would be it. You choose something that you really value in your school or in your uh, curriculum or your pedagogy or whatever, something that you think is really important and you start giving feedback on just that one thing. It can be how many kids participate. It can be how many questions are asked. It can be the kind of questions that you ask. It can be checking in on students each day. It can be doing a special handshake at the door. I don't care. You choose one thing that matters to you as a school leader and you start focusing on that and identifying where it exists, where it doesn't, and then helping people make it exist. And if you did just that one thing, you'd see how powerful it is and how much more enjoyable it is to do that kind of work. And you'll start branching it out into other things. So choose one little tiny thing, very small, not big, very, very small. Like, does every kid participate at least once in a class? Let's start there. Go into a class and see how many kids participate. And that's it. Like, that's all you got to do. Start with one little thing and then start giving feedback based on that one little thing and see what it feels like. What's a celebration that you've recently experienced you want to share? Uh, yeah, I think for me, the thing that is exciting to me um, is working with principals on how to create this this onboarding plan that we talked about at the beginning and and figuring that process out. It's a lot of fun. It's really powerful and it doesn't take nearly as much time as you think. And how can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out and connect? Yeah, I'm at Jethro Jones everywhere on Twitter, Instagram, whatever. And then JethroJones.com, uh, feel free to, to reach out to me there. There's a little thing that says schedule an appointment and we can do a, a free, no obligation, 30-minute coaching call. I'll help you out with that at whatever you need in the moment. That's perfect. Appreciate that. Well, Jethro, thanks so much for your time today. It's been an enlightening conversation. Really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. If you haven't yet today, go thank an educator for all they're doing for us. This has been the Employee Experience in Education podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks and have a wonderful day. Thank you.